1: I am Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernial. She's a nationally known gerontologist. Carol serves as the chairperson of the board for the National Council on Aging, executive director as well of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, and formerly ran the AAA here in San Antonio, Texas, Bear County, Area Agency on Aging, and they're everywhere. Hi, they, welcome well, back. They,
2: they are, and thank you. It's lovely to be back.
1: It's good to see you, and we have a great topic coming up in just a couple of moments, talking about medical bill disputes. Well,
2: and, and this is a huge issue. There is not a caregiver out there that's had a loved one hospitalized or gone to the doctor that hasn't gotten a medical bill and, number one, said, oh, my gosh, I can't read it. And number two, oh, my gosh, how are we going to pay for this?
1: Well, Mike Mulakelis, who is CEO of DisputeBills.com, uh, will tell his own story about a medical uh, a bill that his father got and how he ended up forming a company uh, in order to deal with the issue. But first, we have talked long and hard and often. Uh, the Caregiver Teleconnection has dealt with this. Many people have dealt with this, taking the keys away from your loved one, mom, dad, grandpa, but there is a newer issue being discussed, and that's taking the guns?
2: Taking the guns away. So the other really tough conversation, yes, we've all heard about when it's time to take the car keys and when mom and dad need to stop driving, but how many of us have actually confronted the, you know, mom or dad has guns uh, and it's time to take those away? And I know that on my very first trip home, Uh, With my husband, you know, we were dating, and he was going to introduce me to the family. and And at the time, we didn't know his mother had Alzheimer's. We knew his mother was eccentric. I mean, that was what he told me. I had never met her; Um, that she was eccentric, and something was going on. And the neighbors had called and said, "You really need to come. Uh, She's something's going on." And so we drove to her house, and we could see that she was in there, but she wouldn't let us in. So we could see her sitting in the house wouldn't let us in we called we knocked on the door and she just acted like nothing was going on and my husband was hesitant to knock down the door because he knew his mother had carried a gun all her life, grew wow. up in the country, was apparently a crack shot um, with killing animals that can be eaten, and he didn't really feel like breaking into the house and having mom shoot us uh, at, at the time. As intruders. As, as intruders. And so we had to track down his dad, who was working um, in the oil fields remote, very remotely, And he's like, "Oh, I took the bullets out of that gun a long time ago." So you know that was my own experience with what do you, you know, what do you mean she has a gun and she might shoot us? What's your mom? Which was a a foreign concept.
1: Your father-in-law to be smart enough to do that.
2: Well, that's it because you know, fast forward years later, and I'm working in Florida, and um, this was in a mental health facility. And so they were used to, in flor it's Florida, they were used to having the conversation about guns with the the patients that were mentally ill, and as I recall, one of the therapists was saying, I told the family they need to take the gun away, and they said, I can't take Daddy's gun, Daddy's always had a gun. Well, that was fine until Daddy thought that the son was Mom's boyfriend coming in in the night, Uh, and when the bullet went past his ear... (laughs) At a really close range. At least he missed him. Yeah, he decided that you know maybe it is time uh, to have that discussion. Wow. So the New York Times, Julie Turkowitz, recently on June 11th, there was an article in the New York Times about it's time to give up the guns, and there were there are statistics in there, um, and it's and it's really scary because you know older people, we don't want to generalize, uh, folks. But if you have a loved one that has dementia or mental health issues, but particularly with dementia, paranoia. Is not unusual, and they had a story about an 89 year old father who shot his son because he was afraid his son was coming to kill him uh, because he had paranoia that was a normal result of Alzheimer's dementia. Wow, Um, and unfortunately, uh, it's not that unusual to develop the paranoia, and if you have someone that A gun has been their way of life, you know, going to the shooting range. They got a gun when they were six, and their dad gave it to them, and that's been their hobby. Maybe that's the thing, you know, going to the shooting range, all of that, or they just had a gun as a part of their life. It's a conversation that needs to come up sooner than later. Uh, One study in South Carolina, uh, of all the people that they interviewed, 60% of the patients with dementia... Had guns,
1: sixty percent,
2: sixty percent. Wow, still had their guns. And well, no one had had a worker conversation.
1: Going into homes needs to know that kind of thing.
2: Well, and that's it. And and so one sheriff in a in one of the rural communities, um, I forget you know one of the states like West Virginia, or, uh, had uh actually because the home health agency said we're not comfortable going in and working for Mister Smith. Because uh, we know he has guns, and we're afraid that he's going to have some sort of a, a problem remembering who we are, and he might shoot us. Um, was starting to store the guns. So um, mm. they, they also told a story about, you know, a family that decided they were going to deal with it. They surreptitiously, you know, took the guns out of the house. And uh, Dad noticed that his gun was gone, went down to the sh- local gun shop and bought another one. Wow. And they said it was just miserable. I think in the case in the Florida story I told... The um, local sheriff uh, who knew the family went to him and said, they have stolen your guns. Your house was broken into. The guns are stolen. Um, And this family was able to distract him from, you know, getting new guns. But disabling the guns, removing the guns, um, having the gun conversation— Locking them up in some place that they can't get them. This is an important topic, and it's not just when mass shootings occur. This happens every day, accidental shootings, and it could be an older person that has dementia.
1: I'm thinking of the uh, Wellman Palliative Care docs who make house calls and the nurses who go into homes as well, dealing often with uh, people who are quite old and often with dementia.
2: Well, we have adult protective services, you know, embedded right. in, in our well-med offices, and I have heard them on the phone, and that is one of the first questions they ask when they are doing, when somebody is reporting abuse, is do you know if this person has weapons on the premises? Wow Uh, because they certainly don't want him to walk into a bad situation.
1: You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernio. You hear this program 6 o'clock Sunday afternoons. Podcasts are available as well, and you can get those simply by Googling Caregiver SOS on air or go to caregiversos.org. Up next, we all know we need powers of attorney, powers of medical attorney, uh, what happens when they're powerless?
2: Well, um, Paula Spann recently did an article in the New York Times, and it was reported again in Next Avenue, uh, about the powerless power of attorney. And, and we've had Carol Birch, who is an elder law attorney on the show, when she did our Caregiver Summit last year, she mentioned the same thing. And the reality is, if you have a power of attorney that's fairly old, that is not on the forms that the bank currently uses you may find that they say they will not honor them and so you don't
1: have access to the money you may need for So care. so
2: the situation is bad if okay you got those signed well in advance before you know the dementia mom and dad became incapacitated the reason right. you're using them is because they need to be used and and they can't execute their own affairs anymore and you can't get a new one so well, you know what um the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has said, you know, is that who has to ask the question, all right, who am I dealing with? Is this the, the bank teller? telling you that the form is no good you know you probably need to go up the pecking order of the financial institution that you're dealing with to see if you can find someone who maybe has known this family for a long time and so why are they concerned about how old the document is the reality is they're trying to protect the consumer sure
1: they're saying all right is this
2: elder abuse going on somebody's come in the form's really old how do i know their wishes haven't changed so they're just trying to protect against elder abuse and so you may need to to work your way up um i know carol birch did mention that a local bank versus a national bank is more likely to honor your forms so when you're picking that bank you're you're out with your older person that you're caring for and you're looking at the bank maybe it's time for a change to a local bank where you you can get to know each other while mom and dad still have capacity and say this is why i'm choosing you
1: santoni you think of jefferson bank broadway bank Frostbank.
2: yeah your local bank. you know who your local banks are um, and then they said, as a, as a, you know, sort of a last resort, if you need that power of attorney and and it is valid, it was executed, it's legal in your state, you may have to have an attorney go to that bank um, and confer with them on the legality right. of the document that you have.
1: And uh, you may be able to get it satisfied that way.
2: Yes. Yes.
1: There's a growing concern to shift gears about men. And depression.
2: Well, this is June, and it's National Men's Health Month, Uh, and so one of the things that is still get your head and
1: your prostate checked.
2: (laughs) Well, that's yeah. Those are two things you could do, right? But you know, a lot of people don't realize that um, a depression is, is very prevalent. It's also prevalent in men, but that older men have the highest and most successful suicide rate. Uh, And several times a year, it unfortunately comes to our attention that an older man in poor health or poor mental health status um, has committed suicide. You know, we started talking about guns. That's the other reason that you want to get guns out of mm-hmm. the house uh, is because that, that men tend to use guns uh, when they get depressed. So in recognition of, of uh, Men's Health Month, we want to talk just briefly about depression, um, you know, what's the difference between depression and sadness really quickly. If you have a loved one who's having difficulty sleeping, either getting too much sleep or not sleeping at all, if they're gaining a lot of weight or losing a lot of weight, Uh, If they've got mood swings or irritability, uh, they're withdrawing. They're not enjoying things, you know, they've always enjoyed doing, and they're not enjoying those anymore. Uh, Those can be trouble signs that maybe depression is going on. Some medications cause depression. You can have situational depression. But it's something you don't want to just let it go. Uh, And men may be, especially older men, may be more hesitant to get help. So, um, you know, talk to your primary care physician, talk to a mental health provider, uh, and and, and talk to your loved one about, you know, you've noticed that they're uh, you know, they're just not the same. They're not enjoying life. They're feeling down in the dumps, and, and how can you help? And then, obviously, if you ever do suspect somebody um, is suicidal, you would want to call a suicide prevention hotline uh, and get help that way as well.
1: Getting him to see his PCP is often a challenge.
2: Well, it, it is, you know, but getting it to a, a, someone to a primary care provider may be easier than getting them to a mental health provider. That's true. So, you know, maybe let that physician be the person to say, because, you know, like at WellMed, we screen for depression. Um, when someone becomes a new patient. Uh, and so that's what you want is a primary care provider who's going to be interested in, in doing a mental, uh, mental health And women screen. screens
1: every year. Every they screen every annual. year just to make
2: sure that somebody doesn't you know right. become depressed as a result of an illness or a medication or a situation. We're going to
1: talk in just a minute, speaking about being depressed, having a medical bill that's way beyond what you thought it would be and you don't know what to do. We're going to give you help with that with CEO, the CEO of DisputeBills.com. Matt Mulakalis will be with us in just a moment right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Cheryl Foundation. His goal, to support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to the local senior programs that focus on wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers that offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and a whole lot more. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org. CaregiverSOS.org or call 866-390-6491. For more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help, go to wellmedcharitablefoundation.org. That's wellmedcharitablefoundation.org. Well, we were promising you some really interesting information about how to deal with those medical bills that you think are a little high and out of line. And we're going to deliver right now. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel on Caregiver SOS on air. And Matt Mulichelis joins us, CEO of DisputeBills.com. And, Matt, thanks so much for coming on with us. We really appreciate it.
3: I appreciate you having me. Sounds like a great opportunity.
1: And you backed into... uh, company opportunity that you created uh, after your dad had a heart attack uh, tell us about that
3: that's correct at the time i i actually worked for ibm in massachusetts and i was traveling home to cover chicago which was my territory and unfortunately had a heart attack while i was home mm. um, we took him to the hospital he survived but Good. this was a person that was employed and insured and was hit with over $50,000 in medical debt.
2: So so let me just stop right there. So those of us who are working and we have insurance, we think that we're safe, that the insurance is going to cover everything, and you're saying that your dad ended up with $50,000 in medical bills above and beyond what the insurance paid. That's correct. That's a huge bill.
1: Had to be a shock for you and your mom.
3: You know, it, it was a shock in particular for me. I, I obviously was not as a younger millennial, you know, I had insurance that was provided through my employer, but I wasn't really familiar with the whole landscape. And fortunately for us, my mom worked in this type of capacity at another hospital. They really found out that, hey, this is completely inaccurate. You know, this happens, you know, not only to us now, but it happens all the time. What is
1: what is the it that happens?
3: Inaccurate billing, overcharging, um, Duplicate charges, you know, coordination of benefits errors. It's, it's really just a variety of different circumstances that can result in, in, in an accurate bill.
1: But, but most of us laymen cannot read a, a hospital bill. You have no idea what's there.
3: That's correct. I mean, your average person, healthcare is confusing. And, and I would wonder if it's done by design because it is very challenging to understand on your own which is where, you know, some of our value comes in.
2: So overcharging, um, if you're overcharged, does that mean you have to go back and negotiate the charge? That's correct. Or is, so, or is it that supposedly you know what was supposed to be charged and then they've charged you higher yeah, than that? Yeah, because none of us know
1: what's supposed to be
2: charged.
3: Right. I, I think there are circumstances where, you know, really the best information you're going to find is on your itemized bill and that is not something that is generally given to you at discharge or even sent to the mail unless you go out of your way to request that. Um, But in an itemized bill is where you're going to potentially see things that you were charged for, like being charged for a private room when you were in a shared room, little things like that. Um, Conversely, you wouldn't really know what you should be charged for unless you do some due diligence on your own and try to look up, you know, different pricing alternatives. There's a great tool called Healthcare Blue Book, which allows people to look up standard and average pricing for procedures within your zip code or within your area.
1: Healthcare Blue Book, like Kelly Blue Book for cars. Correct. Healthcare Blue Book, and it will give you an idea of what that procedure should have cost and what that aspirin should have cost. That's correct. Huh. So what did you do? You got this bill. You're just a young whippersnapper with IBM with a bunch of white shirts in your suitcase, <laughs> ready to go. Yep. Was that when I, IBM used to, you had to wear a white shirt, right?
3: White shirt, uh, a gray suit, I believe, and a yeah, blue tie.
1: Exactly. Right. And that's, yep. that was your knowledge of the medical health care system. <laughs>
2: but so so your mother was in the billing department at another hospital?
3: That's correct. She'd been in that department for 25 years, so she had seen this firsthand. Um not certain that it was something that she had saw personally firsthand, but but knew how to navigate around that.
1: So she and was a big booster.
3: I, I was lost. I, yeah. mean, I I didn't know what these bills looked like, if they were accurate or not. And, you know, within about two months, they were wiped down to zero.
1: So how did she do that?
3: Well, she had requested itemized bills for every single data service, um, had compared those against insurance, You know, on an explanation of benefits statement, which you get from your insurance company, it'll show you, you know, why something wasn't paid. It's a justification code. And it's as simple as really looking down at the bottom of the page and calling based on what that justification code said. So a coordination of benefits error. And this particular example took place several times where his insurance, the doctor had billed to the, the wrong insurance, the incorrect insurance, the workers' comp, which he didn't have, and his primary care insurance was denying the payment, and that was as Simply stated on his explanation of benefit statement. So it was a coding. So error. These, it was a coding
1: error.
2: Huh. Wow. So all so every completely wrong insurance. So they were saying, no, we're not going to pay it because that's not what kind of insurance he had.
3: Wrong insurance. Um, there was absolutely some overcharging. There were duplicate codes. Um, there were codes for things that shouldn't even have been uh, processed to begin with. So it was more than just insurance, but that's just a simple example for how people can just kind of do this on their own.
1: So they built you for his hysterectomy. <laughs>
3: Essentially. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> so, exactly.
2: So if you had said, oh, if your if your mother had said, oh, we owe $50,000, they would have collected the $50,000, even and, and never once looked again to see if they had done anything wrong?
3: They would be happy to. And the insurance would also gladly not pay their portion if they didn't have to. So what I've really come to realize and, and what struck a chord in me was that there are so few parties that are really looking out for the patient.
1: Right. Right.
3: You know, the... The provider wants to get paid in the insurance. They obviously want to mitigate as much of the payment as, as they can.
2: Wow, that's, it's so scary because when you read in the newspapers, particularly during the recession, but it's still going on today, that most bankruptcies are actually caused by medical bills.
3: And, you know, to your point earlier, what's even scarier about that is that about three fourths of these bankruptcies by medical bills are with people who have insurance.
2: So they could be just like you, and they, and maybe they haven't gone to the work that you your, you and your mother did.
3: Exactly. And we always tell people that, you know, you can forecast, you can budget for a home, a car, you know, a credit card, different types of expenditures. But you can't forecast a heart attack. So when those moments hit you that are emergencies, you know, you really need to be very thorough because, you know, it, it is. It's a, it's a true statement. It is the leading cause of
1: bankruptcy. So, did your mother and you found the company together? Because obviously, she's the brains behind all this.
3: She's totally the brains behind the operation. Um, that that experience definitely prompted prompted the start of the business. It took a very long time of, of research just to make sure that this, you know, wasn't a problem just for us; that it was an industry wide problem. And I mean, the the information that we found was shocking, and it was enough to say, "All right, let's let's get this going."
1: All right, I want to talk a little bit more about what you found if you've just joined us. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zernio. We're talking to Matt Moulakalas and we practice that name Moulakalas and we've got it. CEO of DisputeBills.com and it all began when he found that uh, his dad had been grossly overbilled for procedures as a result of a heart attack. Uh, Got that bill down to zero and Ultimately, you formed a company. What did you find in your research? Obviously, you were not the Lone Ranger.
3: I was not the Lone Ranger. Um, again, my, my mom's knowledge was extremely valuable to me. Uh, I recruited a team, which included my co-founder and actually college roommate, who moved out from Boston to join the company. And what we found, uh, again, was that there's very few individuals that were really advocating for the patient. The, the term healthcare advocacy is fairly new. Um, but from a hard data perspective, we found, and it was cited many, many times, that on average, about eighty percent of medical bills con- contain some type of error.
2: That's and pretty, that's
1: you know that's a big number. Eighty
2: percent is a high 80%. high number.
1: That's a huge number.
2: It's massive, and that's you know that's
3: manual error. You know, it's a we have a standardized coding system. Um, and, and another driver for us was that we we're, as a country, moving to ICD-10, which is the standardized billing system. That was going to introduce another hundred thousand new billing codes. So the thought was, if we can't manage ten or fifteen thousand, how can we manage hundred to one hundred fifteen thousand? And then, you know, again, we more research found that, particularly in the senior space over intentional over billion and fraud itself is about a 270 billion dollar a year business and that's the intentional side.
2: Well and, and when you talk about that, Medicare is picking up a huge chunk so Medicare paying 80% traditional Medicare pays 80% um, with with beneficiary needing to pay the 20% unless they have uh, a Medicare supplemental plan. So is that do you think that was the growth of the of this you know some of this hospital billing is that they had a ready payer in Medicare?
3: Absolutely. You know, it, it's been demonstrated that they've, they've tried to take advantage of that system. Um, I think you're finding now that it's becoming a little bit more challenging. Um, and in their defense, you know, it's, it is a challenging landscape on the provider side. They're, they're writing off, you know, record amounts of bad debt. I think the previous year was $40 billion in uncompensated care. Um, so what we found, you know, through our organization, is that our relationship with the provider is is actually not adversarial. It's pretty congenial. You know, they want to get paid for their services. They don't always intentionally make the mistake, and they're more than willing to negotiate with us.
1: Well, tell us how you work. Let's say, uh, uh, you know, God forbid, I have some cataclysmic medical event. I go in the hospital, and I I end up after insurance uh, with a bill for fifty, sixty. Thousand dollars, and I call you
3: correct. Go to disputebills.com. All right, hold
1: that thought. We're going to come right back to you. That's called a tease. We'll be right back with you in just a minute and tell little Ronnie how I can get rid of that 60 grand in debt, assuming a lot of it is inappropriately billed. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol zernio We're talking about disputebills.com and how to fight. Medical Bills. We are rocking right along with a very interesting topic, uh, disputing medical bills and how you can do it. Most of us are not prepared uh, to understand that billing process, not prepared to go to war on our own behalf. But... Uh, the CEO, com. Matt Mulichelis is with us on our Caregiver SOS on-air hotline. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. And we were telling you, uh, a hypothetical, I get a bill for 60-some thousand bucks uh, after a medical procedure, uh, and I pick up the phone and I call Matt. Then what?
3: You call me, and I would say go to com. You would sign up. We have a fully HIPAA-compliant User dashboard, which allows you to create your case. Uh, You can upload your medical bills, which, of course, you can fax, mail to us. Um, And we assign you a dedicated billing advocate who sits within our office. You know, our team is ex-coders and billing managers, so we're very specific with who we bring on. And that would give you the opportunity to really manage the process within our four walls, again, in a HIPAA-compliant, safe manner. You can chat with your advocate live through the dashboard, get updates, see the status of your case. And really, for you as a customer, the process just takes two minutes to get started, and then we do all the work from there.
1: And how do I pay for that?
3: So We offer both a contingency model, which is 30% of what we save you. There's no upfront fee. There's no cost to evaluate your case. You can go ahead and send us all your bills. And we will give you a consultative case summary of what we think we can do, and we get your, your approval to move on, and we take a percentage of the savings. The other model, which we have actually launched for caregivers and those with more recurring needs, is a subscription-based product. It's 19.99 a month, and it gives you monthly unlimited use of our services, you know, in the event that you have more recurring bills.
2: Right. So, and do you deal with both commercial insurance and Medicare?
3: Yes, we do.
1: And and is it safe to say to start with the assumption that every bill you get is going to have a problem in it?
3: We say every bill is disputable. Um, Not always that there's a problem with the bill, uh, but depending on the patient's financial situation, there's generally an opportunity where we can save you money.
2: So do you find that this idea of arguing with the hospital I mean that 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 seems like you know the hospital is the man the, the, the big you know gorilla in the room and that there's just no way that you can win is that is that a, a, a new thought for most of your customers
3: it is it really is and I hate to say this and we don't want people to be cynics about healthcare because you know providers you know are our savior in many cases but there is a history of overbilling and overcharging. And so I think the term, again, healthcare advocacy, more importantly, billing advocacy is new. People really aren't familiar with it. So, um, and again, we don't want to be seen as someone that's negotiating, arguing with hospitals. We just want to bring clarity to the patients that we work with that, hey, this was billed correctly. I'm paying for what I deserve.
1: Is it a corporate problem or an individual provider problem or both?
3: I think it's both. You know, again, the the Affordable Care Act took a lot of reimbursement away from providers in the form of insurance and put it on the patient. And, you know, they're they're really struggling with ways to collect for the care that they provide. So, you know, if they could squeeze out a couple extra dollars, we wouldn't be surprised if that's the case.
2: So have you had people come to you sort of, Not not post-mortem that they're dead, but after they've declared bankruptcy and said, should I have done something different? Have you ever had somebody come and say, oh, my gosh, I've already, you know, exhausted all my funds, I've declared bankruptcy, and then they get to you?
3: We've seen that. Uh, We've actually helped someone prevent bankruptcy uh, through our services. We've seen a lot of individuals that are in collections, it's been the number one leading cause of collections in addition to bankruptcy. Uh, what we generally see is that someone receives a bill and they sit on it because they're not sure you know, why they owe it, what they owe, they thought their insurance covered it. And then the threat of collections is generally what gets them to move forward and want to either solve the problem on their own or use a service like ours.
2: So, are you having to deal with those those collections agencies? I recently um, heard a piece uh, in the media about uh, some of the tactics of the debt collectors. It was pretty ugh, scary.
3: Yeah, I think it can be somewhat of an ugly business. We do work with them a lot. Um, again, you know, just to educate people out there, they're looking to get paid as well. You know, so generally, there's an opportunity where you can negotiate and, and save money.
1: Well, they get a percentage of what they collect.
3: That's correct. And they get you, a percentage. So and you get a percentage. You get a smaller amount. They're, they're right. looking to
1: get paid. Uh, and do they have the authority to negotiate down? Not,
3: not a tremendous amount, but, yeah, they, they do have the ability. There's some wiggle room typically with a collections agency.
1: So in a bill, billing situation where it's gone to collections but you find serious problems, do you go back to the original uh, hospital bill or do you have to deal with the collection agency?
3: Our number one focus at any time there's an engagement with a customer is to understand why the bill was the original amount. Why it was it $10,000? So we'll always start at the top, and if it trickles down, then we will go back to the provider and say, hey, you know what, this is sent to collections. This is actually billed inaccurately, and we'll start from scratch.
2: Well, do you ever have situations where, you know, most of the bill is actually accurate, but the family just can't afford to pay it, and you negotiate down simply because – Getting some payment is better than getting no payment if you're the hospital?
3: Absolutely. Um, That is very, very common. Um, You know what I think that does for the patients that we work with is that it gives them peace of mind that it is accurate and that they're more willing to make a payment on something, even if their initial perception was that it was overpriced, that, hey, this is accurate. Um, There might be an opportunity for pricing concessions or even a payment plan if we can help arrange that. And even if, if we don't make money off that process, we're still willing to help our customer in that respect.
2: Yeah, and I think that that's, that's a concept that a, a lot of um, caregivers or people just don't realize, is that even if they actually do owe the money, there is an opportunity um, to go in and try to negotiate uh, the final price if you absolutely can't afford it um, so that you can come up with a, as much of a win-win for both parties as possible.
1: People of all ages come to you, or is it mostly seniors? It's,
3: it's all ages. Uh, seniors is certainly a big market because of recurring needs, and we have a partnership with the American Senior Association. Um, but it's, it's really it's a problem that affects everyone. you know. So, again, because you can't plan it, and this is a reactive process, we have a pretty wide range of, of demographics that we work with.
1: And you can work nationally.
3: We do work nationally, we're based in Chicago, but we've worked cases in every single state in the country.
2: So how long have you been at this?
3: Through our pilot program, we've been at this about sixteen months now.
2: Sixteen months. So in it's it's not a long time, but how much money do you think you've saved in that amount of time?
3: Over if, a million dollars.
2: Over a million dollars
3: yeah absolutely
2: yeah and that's real money. I mean that's cash that's hard cash that someone would have had to have paid um for for medical bills that may or may not have been accurate
3: for for some people, it really can change their life. It really can't. It's a difference between a vacation. it's a difference between a car. It makes a really big difference in a lot of people's lives,
2: yeah or a difference between bankruptcy and even bigger <laughs> you know and actually and and just you know you think about. Uh, and we hear about all the stresses and strains of caregiving. And even though it's my mother or my father that has this debt, that's a tremendous burden. That worry gets transferred to the caregiver who's trying to balance the finances and make sure that they have enough money to live on. You know, And, and, and if their health is failing, what's going to happen to them in the long run? I mean, it's just a huge, huge worry for everybody involved in that family. Now, are
3: you- it, it, re- it is.
1: Are you dealing solely with medical bills, or with other billing situations where uh, folks have been inappropriately billed for consumer products?
3: Just healthcare, okay. um, some medical, dental, vision, but yeah, exclusively to healthcare.
1: You said dental too, and vision. That's correct. You find similar problems in the dental area.
3: You know what? Our experience is mostly on the medical side. Uh, we have work cases. Um, I don't think the problem is as large in that space, um, uh-huh. but it's it's certainly there.
2: See, my my theory is that that in the dental field is like the, the you know weather forecasters. Yeah, you know, they're they're two very inaccurate sciences: <laughs> meteorology <laughs> and dentistry. Yeah, but you're not high on dentistry. So. <laughs>
1: So, so, your dad has a heart attack in twenty thirteen. Uh, may I ask, is he still around? Still doing okay?
3: Unfortunately, he's not. And um, you know, I was someone at, at a young age that was a caregiver, and I went through the process personally, and I know how challenging. You know, Carol, to your point about the stresses of you know your own life. A lot of caregivers are husbands and fathers, and, and they have their own lives and. You know, he didn't make it through another situation, but we went through the same challenges again. And I, I know even my mom was saying, I need my own advocate at this point in time. So it's just, it's very challenging.
1: So, so he got inappropriately billed for the second situation?
2: There was
3: about a year of overcharging.
1: Wow. All
2: right, which which is, you were talking about your subscription basis where somebody you know is dealing with medical bills on a regular basis and they come in piles i mean i don't go to the doctor very often but i know that you know when i do and you get this stack and that stack it can be very confusing so we we've got about um a little over a minute left you know what what's the best advice that you could give um a caregiver who is facing a challenge um like trying to decipher a medical bill or looking at a huge medical bill that's think they think it's going to sink their ship
3: I would say that the most important thing that you can do is stay organized, which I know is a very big challenge, but, you know, develop a cadence, a relationship with the financial aid department, with the billing department, the providers that you you, you visit or, or your loved one visits, request itemized bills, um, you know, really fight, be willing to fight and be willing to ask questions, um, you know, seek as much transparency as possible. And in the worst particular situation, or, or when, if that's not effective, you know that there's advocacy organizations out there who are willing to help you.
1: You know, part of the problem, is you know you're aware, is they break those bills up, so you don't get one bill. You get a bill for uh, the anesthesiologist, you get a bill for x-ray, you get a bill from the surgeon, you get a bill from the hospital, and that makes it even more confusing
3: that's correct that's where organization really is is key and it's very challenging you know if you're a caregiver there's there's a lot of other tasks that you have on your plate and that's what makes it challenging but it's key i mean it really I, we've looked at those hundreds and hundreds of pages but it's needed to work the case
1: wow so you go through them with a uh, fine tooth comb as they say
3: absolutely
1: well we really appreciate you coming on a- any last piece of Information we haven't asked you about you want to share with our listeners?
3: If you're looking for information, um, please check out our website, com. We're very, very transparent with what we do. Uh, We really try to educate our users and our customer base on how they can do this on their own. Um, We have checklists. We have playbooks. We have all different types of things that you can really use to your advantage. So we really invite you to check out our website and take advantage of those resources.
1: Well, thank you. Appreciate you coming on.
2: Yeah, no, it's, thank great, you. it's great advice. Um, and, and a great we'll, we'll, service. We'll check back with you later, you know, like a year from now and see how things are going. Sounds great. I appreciate the chance to, to
3: come on and talk to your audience.
1: Matt and CEO thank you. CEODisputeBills.com. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zernil on Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM. The answer, take 10, is next. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation, His goal, to support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to the local senior programs that focus on wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers that offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and a whole lot more. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org, caregiversos.org, or call 866-390-6491. For more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help, go to WellMedCharitableFoundation.org. That's WellMedCharitableFoundation.org. Well, thank you so much for joining us for the end of our Caregiver SOS on-air program when we bring you Take 10, uh, which really could be the beginning of the show. It's a great end, great beginning, whatever. I'm Ron Aaron, and our special guest, Dr. Jamie Heisman, joins Carol Zerniel and I. Dr. Heisman, a well-known, nationally known psychotherapist and expert on caregiving and addictions. And Carol Zerniel, you've got a great topic that uh, is much in the news of late, dealing with seniors and hidden addictions
2: well I think the reason we're seeing it in the news is obviously the death of Prince who supposedly had a very quote clean life um, and yet was addicted to painkillers and so there was a piece in the New York Times about prescription drug abuse among older adults which a lot of us don't think about I know Jamie knows about it but a lot of us are are surprised by that and how um, how drug abuse can be harder to detect in older people. And, and so, Jamie, my question is, why are all of a sudden older adults becoming, quote, drug addicts?
4: Well, let's frame this up for a minute, because, you know, this is an American phenomenon. Though opiates obviously are prescribed all around the world, 80% of the opiates that are used are used in America. 80%.
1: How do you know that?
4: Well, I know that because as an addiction professional, um, we, we've seen that that America has this absolute driving need for the quick fix, for the blue pill, for the purple, you know, the medicine. Um, so we so, are a pill-driven society, a disease society, a disease-driven society that goes to that pain relief first, goes to that you know pill first, and so that's just putting it national and international context. But when you come down to America, run. 40% of the prescription drugs sold in the United States are used by the elderly.
2: So give me an example of a, a drug that would be an opiate, Let a common oh. you know, a common name, a common prescription drug that a senior might be taking that's Oxycontin. an
4: opiate. Oxycontin, exactly. Oxycontin, hydrocodone, uh, those medications. And obviously those are opiates. When you're looking at benzodiazepines, that's more the Xanax
2: world. So like the Xanax, Um, the Valiums. what's Percocet?
4: Percocet is is an opiate. It's an opiate, okay. And it's a painkiller. It's what your dentist gives you
1: after surgery.
2: Yeah, so those are names all of us know. All of us have heard of those, quote, painkillers.
4: Mind you now, physician practices are that if somebody does go through, let's say, a dental procedure, they're likely to get, you know, 10, 20, maybe 30 Percocets. Um, They may not even need them. They may not even, you know, you may not be the... The actual way to alleviate the pain, but doctors will just provide that anyway, is pain relief. And I believe pain should be treated. I'm not on any sort of soapbox telling people not to, but there's true alternatives. Uh, But just so your audience understands, though, that if you will, chronic pain, insomnia, anxiety, uh, these are conditions that the seniors have. Um, And these are actually conditions that are being prescribed for today.
1: And how quickly do you become addicted if you uh, start taking Percocet? Let's say you really have pain, so you take one and two and three.
4: Yeah, well, there's a lot of factors that go into that, Ron. And obviously, if you have a genetic predisposition, uh, the American Medical Association has said this is a biological, psychological, and social phenomenon, but it is biologically predisposed. So many people who really start taking medication in the way you describe are off to the races.
2: Well, and, and um, the and New then, York the New York Times article said it can be as, in, as little as 10 days.
4: It could be. And the definition of an addiction, I think, is best used, especially with seniors, who, by the way, are the fastest growing group of addicts and alcoholics in our country, is that an addiction is doing any behavior at all despite adverse consequences. So if you're... 10 days is starting to create a dependency, um, you know, the byproduct of medication, fogginess, you you name it, whatever the the, uh, symptoms are, um, then misuse is going to follow because what else are you going to do? Besides, you have a very isolated senior population in America.
2: Well, uh, the other uh, interesting fact that in the New York Times article, um, and this came out uh, just this past month on June the 11th, was saying, they were saying that uh, women tend to become addicted more quickly than men, and that's probably because we have a, a our, we metabolize faster, uh, small usually women are smaller.
4: Yeah, well, that, and that may well be the case too. again, it's biological, psychological, and social, but then you have to ask yourself, so how does a caregiver know when their loved one actually crosses the line that both of you were talking about? Because again, this isolation is fertile ground for any addiction.
1: All right, hold that thought. If you just joined us, you're listening to Take 10, part of Caregiver SOS On Air, on 9.30 a.m. The Answer with Carol Zerniel and Ron Aaron and Dr. Jamie Heisman joining us on our Caregiver SOS Hotline. Uh, you say the caregiver would would be the first line of defense. Uh, what do they need to know then? Is it, I need more pills, I need more pills, please give me my pills or I'll break your neck?
4: Well, no, they will see their loved one, if you will, mood change they'll see an argumentative mom, dad, brother, where they didn't see one necessarily before. Um, They may also see a sullen, withdrawn, anxious person that they did not know before. Uh, Then you start hearing the excuses by the loved one in terms of the medication that that they're taking, uh, which is a huge cover-up, because what the medication becomes when it's a dependency is the best friend of that addicted person, meaning... There's nothing that will actually take precedence, So they'll do what they need to do to hide. Um, and also you have to understand that they're being treated by physicians at hospitals, um, and there is a likelihood that pres- doctors are prescribing medication in different locations. And certainly when an addict becomes an addict, they start learning, especially as you see the boomers start taking hold here, of what doctor shopping is all about.
2: Well, and, and I think you bring up a really good point. Um, and that's another thing in the article. It talks about how people who go to, you know, seek out new doctors again and again and again, and even sometimes if they're in a small town, going to other small towns around there or maybe over even over a state line. Uh, to try to find medications and people that don't know that they've already got that prescription. But,
1: but can't we solve this, Dr. Jamie, with the National Registry of Prescriptions? When you when you get a prescription, it goes in this huge database and they cross-check?
4: Well, we are doing that, actually, in many of the large pharmacies, pharmacies that you see, the Walgreens, the CVSs. Uh, but you'll also start seeing people start going to the smaller ones that are not necessarily a part of that database that you're talking about. Um, and you'll also see people turning to others in, or the streets, if you will. Uh, our loved ones are literally becoming addicts and looking for the opiates or hydrocodone or Percocets from anywhere once they're hooked.
2: Well, and and one of the startling things when we opened our senior centers at the WellMed Charitable Foundation is we have seen seniors trading medications out in the parking lot.
3: Yes.
4: Isn't that amazing? It it does we've happen. have to the. You know, a lot of this has to be true education, I think, given to our physicians first and our health coaches and our social workers. Uh, these are the people who actually tap the caregiver and tap the loved one for signs to to look for. Also, we're not doing a, a good enough job in offering alternative to the medication. As I say, certainly I'm not against pain management. I think it's vital uh, and people should be treated for pain. But there's alternative sort of ways to approach it. You know, there's mindfulness based stress reduction, which is what we talk about often here on the show, uh, meditation, if you will, um, stress reduction techniques like yoga and walking. And, and actually the most important thing again, as always will be, just like why AA and NA work so well is to make sure that you're a part of a self help group because that self help group knows you as well as anybody.
1: Let me ask you a quick question. My mother, uh, who died in her early 90s, uh, had high cholesterol, and the doctor said, hey, don't worry about it. Eat what you want. Is there a real problem here if you just provide the prescription drugs? Somebody who's 80 or 90 years old may be hooked. So what?
4: Yeah, that's what we hear. I hear that so often when I do an intervention. So what? Uh, um Listen, we don't know the longevity of anybody. People are living a lot longer, even if they are addicted. And the quality of a person's life matters. But also not just that one person. Don't forget addiction is a family disease, Ron. It's like a a pinball machine, if you will. The the pinball goes everywhere. It hits brothers and sisters and fathers and daughters. And uh, being, you know, it's no fun having an addict, an active addict in the family. So it is important to circle the wagons, and also there's some excellent, excellent senior addiction programs around the country because, you know, as America is, we're going to respond to a need. And being the fastest-growing group of addicts in the country, uh, treatment centers are popping up everywhere.
2: So how would we find one of those um, addiction treatment centers? What would we look under, just addiction treatment? In 10
1: seconds.
4: Yeah, well, I'll tell you, if you go to a geriatric care manager, you can find it. If you go online and Google Senior. But here's the deal. Just know that Medicare will only pay for hospital-based addiction treatment. Otherwise, it's self-pay and a freestanding. That's something you want to be mindful
1: of. Got to stop you right there, Dr. Jamie Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. This is Take 10 on Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 a.m. The Answer.
0: You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. Presented by the Wellmed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net and join your hosts Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio for another edition of Caregiver SOS on Air on 9.30 a.m. The answer.